back in the 1930s when the United States public housing programs were first starting to get off the ground with some kind of temporary programs in 1935, these first projects that were built were available to people of a range of incomes. You know, anybody could move into these these new public housing projects. And so you had middle class people moving in because they were like, oh, this is like a nice new building with like a low rent. That's awesome. I'll move in there. And you had lower income people moving in because they're like, it's a nice new building with low rent. Great. I'll move in. And then you had landlords in the 1930s saying, oh, whoa, 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 no, I don't want you competing with me. You can't you're not allowed to compete with me. Those middle income tenants, those are mine. You cannot have them. And the Senate agreed and said, OK, great, we'll change this program so that it's only for this narrow band of very low incomes, precisely what the landlords wanted, because they didn't want competition from the public sector on something that they wanted to be the only provider and they wanted everyone to have to come to them. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Infill. Yes in My Backyard podcast. I'm here today with Paul Williams, the founder and executive director of the Center for Public Enterprise. Hello, Paul. Hi, Sonia. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for being here. And we're talking about what killed the social housing bill in California this year. It's not permanently dead. It's like a cat. It's just one life. Social housing is dead. Long live social housing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So the Center for Public Enterprise is a think tank that looks at public goods and uh, public enterprise. So obviously, you know, Paul is involved with one of the most exciting public goods from the past and from the future, social housing. So first of all, why social housing? Don't we already know that the government can't run housing? Like, isn't it a failure? That is a common refrain in essentially the United States only. Many, many countries around the world that have funded public development and social housing programs continue to have very successful public development and social housing programs that provide housing as a public good to many people in those countries. What happened in the United States is that the federal government in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s decided to take all of the money away from those programs. And the result was that that housing started to fall apart and the programs kind of fell apart. So yes, if you stop paying the bill, then yes, things won't work anymore. And that was a particular political choice that the United States made in the 70s and 80s. And it's a choice that was not made in other places. Um, and it's a choice that we can revisit and we can take another look at. And the United States didn't even make that choice for all public housing. We actually have very functional public housing. People just don't realize it, right? I mean, most of the public housing authorities that existed in and were, you know, established in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s still exist. You know, some of them continue to have some of that older public housing stock. Some of the larger developments in, you know, more high profile developments in big cities have been demolished. But a lot of public housing authorities in, in many states, including California, continue to have publicly owned housing that they operate. But the program of constructing housing with significant public investment and public ownership does not exist anymore in the United States. The main example I was thinking of um, is the Presidio in San Francisco, which a lot of people don't realize is public housing. What is different about it is that it's market rate. And yeah. not only does it pay for itself, it funds the upkeep of the park along with there's office there, there's museums, 
that's beautiful, successful, but it is public housing in the sense uh, that it's owned by the federal government. Those are leftover army uh, structures, right? They was it wasn't built like for the public, but it's still used. They charge rent, yeah. They use the rent to pay the bills, and they do have a they do have a program where workers who work at Presidio can get lower cost rent in some of the units too. The other example is um, student housing, right? Yeah. I mean, the UC system is part of the government and student housing, they're building that all the time. Students pay for it. Again, it's not at all cheap, but it does exist. Right. So I think one of the things is that we have to think a little broader about what public housing even means. There's also the classic kind, right? Like I live in Oakland, the Acorn Housing Projects, they still exist. There's high rise you know, public housing right near my house in Philadelphia, right near my parents' house. There's high rise public housing. Same thing. It's perfectly normal, fine apartment housing. It's operating. So not a failure. Why do Yimbys care about it? I think there's a couple of really important reasons why why Yimbys are increasingly interested in social housing and public development programs, you know, over the past, you know, few years. One of them is obviously because if you're doing public development, public construction of housing, you are increasing the housing supply and like that is priority number one for Yimbys. But I think a couple of other kind of unique things about publicly owned, publicly developed housing that are great are one, when we have kind of economic recessions, private developers are not interested in building because one, they're, they have a harder time getting credit to construct projects because there's too much risk in the market. Public developers, on the other hand, don't have those same concerns. They can continue to build. And in fact, in many European countries where there are strong social housing programs, that public investment for housing construction continues to happen in economic downturn periods. And that's, you know, one of the biggest problems with the great financial crisis in terms of housing supply was that in, you know, 2008, housing construction and and construction jobs just like plummeted off a cliff. And it basically took a decade to get those numbers back up to like where they were 15 years ago. And numbers so of workers. Both numbers of permits and numbers of workers, which kind of go together. And so you don't want to have that situation. You want you don't want all that lost time of like rebuilding that. You want to have public programs that can keep people employed and keep housing being produced, you know, when the market has a failure. And then another great piece about it is that public developers, like with the example of Presidio, publicly owned housing could collect market rents and use it to fund another program. Or in other cases, a public developer could have a cross-subsidy program where some of the units are market and some of the units, you know, you're able to subsidize units without the need for a bunch of cash. And you can add money in if you want to subsidize even more, but you, because you're a nonprofit entity, right? You're the public, you can do that. Yeah. And I really want to underscore, I mean, the 2008 recession, every recession is hard on on the construction industry, obviously. But the 2008 recession was like incredibly crushing. And I mean, the construction industry, if you talk to anybody that's in it, it has absolutely not recovered at all. It was such a purge, you know, because people who were, you know, maybe near retirement, but would have kept working, retired early, people who would have gone into the field. And it's not just construction all the way to like architects too, wound up doing something else because they graduated from school and they were looking at three, four, five years of, or who knows? I mean, honestly, for those of us that were in the labor market in any industry at the time, it it was a very scary time and it's hard to know when it was going to end. Yeah. So it just really destroyed the labor pool for this, this sector in a, in a very long, long lasting way. Um, so anything that could have mitigated 
And the other thing about 2008, which, okay, a little bit of a tangent, but that thankfully, I think for this recession, this COVID caused recession, the government didn't replicate, you know, quite as badly was, I feel like the federal government made some bad choices as far as how they were injecting money into the economy. They did the right thing. It's a recession. Let's spend money. But their quantitative easing just gave money to banks. And it caused a lot. I mean, it didn't work that well. And it caused a lot of resentment. If there had been more public housing agencies, I mean, at the time, I guess we wouldn't necessarily bought um, bill housing, but any kind of public agency, like maybe they could have kept those afloat. This time around, they seem to have dumped a lot of money into SBA loans. So it was spread out to small business owners, which has its own you know, equity problems, but is, I think, better than just giving it to banks. Anyway, back to social housing. So social housing creates housing. It's more housing, right? What UMB doesn't want more housing. We all want more housing. And uh, private developers can do it. The public can do it. The public can be a developer. It's a good thing. And certainly we trust the government to do things like run hospitals and schools, which I don't know about you, Paul, no offense to landlords. I think running a school or a hospital is many times more complicated than being a landlord. Being Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I would agree. Oh. As the, the son of a public school teacher, I 100% agree. It is incredible to me that like the a regular person, I mean, 80, 90% of, you know, kids go to public school. Any old regular person is like, yeah, sure. I trust the government to educate my kid, which is very delicate and I don't know, high state. Right. But they're like, trust the government to be my landlord? Hell no. Yeah. Obviously, <laughs> they can be a landlord. I mean, the government is the landlord for the schools, too. So they have experience being landlords. Tell a little bit about this social housing bill um, that Yimby's ran with partners in California, what it was, what it would do, maybe what's different about it, about the housing it would create compared to the public housing authorities of the past. Sure. Yeah. So the big picture with Assembly Bill 2053, which was the bill name, was the Social Housing Act. And what it intended to do was create a new agency at the state level in California called the California Housing Authority. And the California Housing Authority would be tasked with building two kind of types of housing. One type would be mixed income rental housing, so with this kind of cross-subsidized approach where you have some units that are market rate and some units that are moderate income and some units that are lower income, and you know you have rental buildings that this agency is allowed to build kind of across the state. Another type that it could build is limited equity cooperative housing. So this is similar more to, to what some of the Southeast Asian public housing authorities have done over the past three, four, five decades where there are these publicly developed and publicly owned you know, residential buildings, but people have kind of 99-year leases or these limited equity cooperative ownership structures that allow them to build a little bit of family wealth while still maintaining you know, the kind of public quality of the housing. And you know, there were a number of things in the bill that kind of would push the California Housing Authority in a few specific directions. One, which I think is important, is the California Housing Authority would be directed to look to jurisdictions that are far below their RENA housing requirements. So if you have some cities that have failed to build any multifamily housing over the past decade or two, the California Housing Authority would be able to come in and say, okay, you're having trouble meeting your RENA goals. Let me help you out with that, which that creates a little bit of political tension because you know many of these cities that have failed to meet their RENA goals have intentionally failed to meet their RENA goals, uh, and they don't actually want help meeting them. 
those are kind of the big picture things. And, you know, there's, there's also these questions of like, okay, how do you fund and finance a program like this? The idea with this authority is that there's like a level of housing and like affordability that can be done without significant ongoing subsidy. And there are these efforts to bring another bill to maybe be a kind of tandem thing in the future that would attach additional subsidy to this authority, right? So that it could say, look, I have this new authority, I can build this amount of housing, and I'm going to get some additional subsidy from the state of California to do, you know, more projects to meet specific needs in specific places. So yeah, another way of talking about this, tell us, does this agency cost money? Like, does it cost taxpayers money? What costs money is, I mean, you have to have startup costs to pay for staff, right? Obviously, for example, if you if you look at if you look at some of the agencies around the world, like Singapore and Finland and Austria and some of these other places, a lot of these the social housing companies that exist really do and can operate on this kind of revenue neutral model, right? Where they're able to collect a mix of income for rents and they're able to build their projects and kind of pay off their debts to build those projects on their own. And they're able to grow to this point where they're able to sustain their own operations essentially as a as a housing company, but a, a publicly owned one serving a social good and providing housing as a public good. Right. And I think this is something, I mean, I know I personally feel very strongly about, is that anybody that's really serious about having social housing that endures, that is created when Democrats are in power, when there's a budget surplus, but continues even when the political winds change, the social housing agency has to be able to fund itself. Because the worst thing, and this is basically what happened to the public housing you know, that we had is that when it's a good idea, a popular political idea, you build housing, people move in, these buildings still exist when it's no longer a popular idea, and they still need maintenance. And but you are leaving everyone hanging if like Republicans come in power, and they decide that they want to slash the, the budget of that agency. If the agency actually has its own revenues, and it does, it has rents, if it's able to borrow its own money, and if it is making revenue neutral plans, you know, it's making plans for developments that pay for themselves, then it's going to be very insulated from political change. And uh, people who are who want to destroy it are going to have a much harder time. Absolutely. And I think sometimes this gets brought up in the context of people saying, oh, well, then how can a social housing agency provide for lower income tenants? In most of the other countries that have social housing where the agencies themselves operate in a revenue neutral way, those countries have significant social safety net programs that help people pay rent, right? In Finland, for example, almost everyone is eligible for a slew of like welfare benefits and, and rental benefits that help them pay rent. Housing agency itself can serve a whole range of the population and people just have the incomes and supports they need to be able to, to live in, the, in those social housing buildings, right? That's an important kind of distinction to make is like the agency being able to operate independently does not preclude subsidy existing. Right. That actually makes a lot of sense. Like you can still have your Section 8 voucher. Probably what would happen, I guess we shouldn't get too much into speculation of how this would work out, but to flesh out the idea is that you could have a building that's like 10% low income and 30% middle income and then doing math, you know, adding them up. And then you have some percentages are high income. And um, so but people all like the Section 8 program, for instance, will also still exist. And so you could even have more low income people because obviously the public housing authority would accept Section 8. Right. And you can have if the state has a program, you know, you have your federal Section 8. And if the state has a program where it wants to help people pay rent, it can attach those dollars 
to one of these buildings that gets built. That doesn't preclude the agency from being able to build its own buildings and do its whole thing independently. If you have dollars from federal programs, state programs, of course, you can you can give them to people and give them to buildings. You know, these kind of political fights about, you know, how do you meet these subsidy needs? I think they become easier when you have public agencies that are there to like build these public goods. Like we want to get these programs, these agencies established. Another reason to have middle and high income people in public housing is actually the same reason that it's important for Social Security, for you know high income people to get Social Security and high income people to get Medicare, is that you want everyone to be invested in it. There's quite a bit of tension between the idea that on the one hand, you know, we would want to replace or mostly replace the private market for providing housing with a public alternative. But then on the other hand, when we actually talk about building social housing, somehow the idea that middle income people would live in it is bad. But like if literally 60, 70% of people are living in social housing, I really hope that's not because 60 or 70% of people are, you know, living in poverty. It's because it's a normal middle class, like exciting, nice option. And that people are like, oh, yeah, like, did you see the apartments, the the library built? Like, we're living in library commons. Right, right. So back in the 1930s, when the United States public housing programs were first starting to get off the ground with some kind of temporary programs in 1935, these first projects that were built were available to people of a range of incomes. You know, anybody could move into these these new public housing projects. And so you had middle class people moving in because they were like, oh, this is like a nice new building with like a low rent. That's awesome. I'll move in there. And you had lower income people moving in because they're like, it's a nice new building with low rent. Great. I'll move in. And then you had landlords in the 1930s saying, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I don't want you competing with me. You can't you're not allowed to compete with me. Those middle income tenants, those are mine. You cannot have them. And the Senate agreed and said, okay, great, we'll change this program so that it's only for this narrow band of very low incomes, precisely what the landlords wanted, because they didn't want competition from the public sector on something that they wanted to be the only provider and they wanted everyone to have to come to them. Wow. Involvement with only low income housing is a result of landlord lobbying. Yes. Yes. And I think that that's something, you know, we have to, you know, we should grapple with. And I mean, part of what Center for Public Enterprise as an organization is is thinking about and talking about is how do we make public options and public goods for all of these different things in the economy? You know, the private market is collecting economic rents in all of these sectors where it's not good for people, right? And we want to drive those down by providing public goods at a lower cost. And I think housing in particular is, is a really important one. Wow. Okay. So now everybody's very excited. We had, so let's get to the actual housing bill in true Nora style. We'll start at the end where with a death, this year's version did die in the Senate governance committee. And I just want to emphasize it had gone all the way through the state assembly. Yep. Passed all the committees liked it. All the members liked it. So if you are in California and you know who your state assembly person is, I don't know. Maybe they didn't vote for it, but that that body at least, you know, said yes. And then it went to um, the state Senate and the process is that it has to go through several state Senate committees and it died in the Senate Governance Committee. Yeah. Tell us about how that that death. So the Senate Governance Committee is chaired by Senator Caballero. And Senator Caballero in the committee hearing essentially said that, oh, you don't know anything about how 
public agencies work, you're trying to make something too big. How much is this going to cost? Just kind of hemming and hawing about like, oh, this is just such a big new program and we just don't know how we can do it, if we can do it, these kind of things. But there were a number of hints that behind the scenes, there were some other concerns, particularly around, you know, what I mentioned earlier about, you know, the ability of California Housing Authority to look at jurisdictions' RENA targets and their ability to meet those RENA targets and to kind of go into those jurisdictions and build additional density on top of what would normally be allowed under under local law. Right, local control. So it turns out it was a local control issue. In the committee report from the committee staffer, there was a whole section about local control and how some of the things in the legislation that allowed the social housing developer to go into local jurisdictions were problematic for a number of reasons, right? And so like that was in the committee staff report that they did not like that aspect of it. So it was absolutely there. How much that was the driver, you know, I'll leave it up to folks to decide. I mean, we're all just reading the tea leaves here. But that was certainly the tone of some of the co- the comments that were, you know, in the kind of public comment period as well. Yeah. And so just like the UC system, because the UC is part of the state government, this would have been part of the state government. And so it wouldn't have been subject to local zoning because local zoning, you know, these are laws made by local governments and local governments only exist like at the pleasure of the state. The state delegates some of its powers. And one of the powers it delegates is zoning. So when the state owns land, so I guess one of the things implicit here which we hadn't actually discussed before, is that the housing agency would buy and own land. Yes, absolutely. And so on that land, it would be able to ignore local zoning. So, you know, actually one question, I mean, presumably, like if you had changed sort of the charter for this so that the agency was subject to local zoning, one, would it have passed under that those conditions? And two, why not, you know, do that? Why did you decide not to... The way it was written, it was subject to some aspects of local planning processes, but it was also automatically eligible for all of the kind of like density bonuses that are under state law, right? Like there's like a transit density bonus and then there's an affordability density bonus, right? All of these kind of density bonuses that exist, the social housing authority would be like automatically, you know, allowed to do. So we have, so we got our local control guys against it. And also it sounds like just sort of like patronizing like adults. You're not the adults in the room. And to be clear, it was HCD, right? HCD was the agency that they wanted to put it under. That was what they ended up kind of saying. But, you know, they said, oh, you can't make your own agency. You could put it under HCD. But HCD had already said publicly, we don't support this and we're not going to do this. That was like a, a kill switch that they were trying to bake into it. Yeah, and that's the the California Department of Housing and Community Development, which is a huge bureaucracy and it oversees Rena. And you know, I personally have not talked to anybody and I'm this I'm not asking Paul to um comment either way on this. My guess about why HCD wasn't into it is that there's a lot of just it's a big bureaucracy. There's a lot of like little C conservatives there. You know, there are a lot of people there that wake up every day, they know how to do their job, they understand how things work. And this is a big change and they just don't know how to process it. And I also think that they, again, it's just a lot of normal people there. And there's a lot of people that are just like public housing. That's a failure. Like they don't get it. And I doubt that they took the time to get it. 
but I don't want to put anybody who's like officially involved with this in position saying yeah your name. This is my guess about what HCD was thinking. And it also maybe would be a little bit of a competing bureaucracy. I don't know. Well, first of all, you should talk about who the sponsor was. He's extremely cool, Alex Lee. And who is for it, right? Who's part of your coalition? And like labor, for instance. I mean, this seems like an obvious yes for them. There have been times when labor and Yimbys weren't on the same page. Assemblymember Alex Lee was the sponsor, and he represents the Silicon Valley area. And he wanted to build a kind of grand coalition of people supporting this bill. And there's a great coalition this year. And, and I think that he is probably hopeful and excited about making that coalition even bigger next year when this bill comes back to include even more people from labor and even more people from the tenant movement. But the coalition this year was East Bay for Everyone was kind of one of the leading organizations that was like really supporting this bill. And then a lot of the Bay Area Yimby organizations and California Yimby and some DSA chapters, the Silicon Valley DSA, you know, supported the bill. And, you know, I think that coalition is only going to get bigger as as more people kind of learn what a public developer in California would really mean. Labor in particular, I think is going to, you know, I think there's already been some interest, particularly from like the carpenters who are like, oh, wait, like, this is like those construction jobs that all like plummeted in 2008. You're telling me that like, we could just keep building multifamily housing through economic cycles. Fantastic. And that made sense. I mean, honestly, the folks you're talking about, right, YIMBY is in a couple DSA chapters, like being the tip of the sphere, because it is for Americans, it is actually a, quite radical. So it really is going to take the folks that are spending the most time actually thinking about what the problem is and how to solve it to be like, we have to like revisit. And like I said before, it's not even a revisiting. We actually do already have publicly owned and operated housing. You know, revisit expanding this for the regular person. Way more people could have a government be their landlord and they might like it. Thank you so much, Paul. Is there anything else? Actually, we have like one and a half more minutes. You know, the only thing I would say is keep an eye out for the bill next year and make sure that you find out who your assembly member and senator are and let them know that that it's something that you want to see passed and, and get involved with local groups that are working on supporting it because it really is just these local organizations and like a couple of uh, assembly members and senators who are like really pushing for this and it needs all the help that it can get to get over the finish line and get these 1 million social homes for California. Let's do it. And actually for the rest of the country. I mean, Rhode Island has their own yeah. bill that has had some success. They set up a little pilot program. Paul's info will be in the notes. And so if you're outside of California, get in touch with Paul also, because he'll be able to put you in touch with whoever your local. Yeah, there's efforts in a bunch of different cities and states across the country right now, all in various stages of some have a legislation, some are just kind of nascent, but this idea is really snowballing the past year or two. All right. Well, thank you again so much for spending some time on this Monday afternoon. And uh, thanks to the listeners. And we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, Kenneth here, one of the Infill producers. If you're not already a member, go to yimbyaction.org and become a member today. Yimby Action is advocating for the policy solutions we need for abundant, affordable housing and inclusive, sustainable communities across the country. 
If you believe this work is important and valuable, I really want to urge you to become a supporting member. You can do that, as I said, by going to yimbyaction.org join. Thanks so much.